You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. There's one or two books that I've really looked forward to preaching myself. One is the book of Jonah, which is coming up. Uh, The other is the book of Amos. The reason I love Amos is so much is because I, it was one of the first books I read after I became a Christian. As a 19-year-old kid, I actually went to the contents page of my Bible, and I went to the one that's alphabetical instead of in chronological order, and, um, and so Amos was one of the first ones listed, and that's one of the first ones I read, and I'm so thankful that I read Amos right after I became a Christian, because it did two things for me, right? It did this. It made me really... Um, wary of nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity. That's an oxymoron, by the way. There is no nominal Christianity. But do you know what I mean by that? Like just ritualistic church attendance kind of Christianity. Made me really wary of that. Amos is super clear. We'll get to this in a little bit. God is not into nominalism at all. In fact, he's going to say he hates it. So that kind of turning up to church because it's Sunday morning and this is just what we do, I I became really wary of that and have since that time, 19, I'm now 37, all of that time I've never understood nominal Christianity. Like I don't know why you would be here right now if you could be on the couch, couch, like eating bacon and eggs. I don't get it. And Amos gave me that. Amos gave me that. The other thing he gave me was this real strong sense of justice. This is one of the great themes of the book of Amos, is justice and an intolerance for injustice. Amos has an intolerance for injustice because he sees the nature and character of God, a God who cannot stand injustice, oppression. And so Amos gave me that. It's it's one of the reasons I'm married to Renee, um, because we kind of connected on that basis, a shared sense, keen sense of injustice and a shared desire to see justice done to the point that like um, when we got engaged at our engagement party, we, we, with the invitations we sent out, we said we don't want presents but we'd love you to take this tier catalogue and buy a goat for someone in need. You know the tier catalogue? It's a great thing. There's other organisations doing the same thing but we sent those out and some people, even Christian people, were really annoyed that we did that. Like, because their argument was a valid one. They were like, you guys don't have anything. You don't have any money or possessions, and you're getting married. Like, we'd love to give you something. And some of them, like, refused to do the tear thing and gave us stuff anyway. But you know what? I've never, ever regretted not having four cheese graters. Ever. <laughs> like, from that point until now, I've never regretted that. And I've never regretted the decision that we made to do that. And Amos gave us that. This strong sense of wanting to see justice done in the world, particularly a desire to see poor people lifted up rather than oppressed. That's what Amos is all about. He's all about justice. He's all about righteousness. And the reason that he has sort of been triggered in that way is because he... um, He lives in a place... Well, let's read about it. Just go to um, Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll see where this guy's coming from on the screen. It says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, 
when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. The point of that first verse is to introduce us to this guy Amos, but also to let us know this is a book of history. Now, most of it is written in poetry and prose like that, but this is a historical book with a historical context, right? The kings who were reigning, it happened a couple of times before that earthquake that we all remember, right? So it's, it's setting a historical context. This is what you need to know about the, the Bible when we read it, that it is a, 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 histor- a, a historical book with a historical context. This is not fairy tale time. And so you've got this guy, Amos, he's a shepherd. That is one of the, the lowest stations you can have in society of the time, right? Very low socioeconomic status. No reason for anybody to listen to this guy at all. Lots of reasons for people to think this guy is not someone to be trusted at all. And that's his, his background. He's a shepherd, and he lives in a place called Tekoa. We talked a little bit about how at this point in history, Israel is divided into two nations, two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. He lives in Tekoa, which is right near the border. It's just southeast of, of Bethlehem, right near the border in the southern kingdom. But he is focused on the northern kingdom. And the reason he's focused on the northern kingdom is because the king of the northern kingdom is Jeroboam II. And this guy... Um, This guy, by every kind of worldly metric, is a successful king. He has taken land for Israel. He has increased the economy, their prosperity. And so from every kind of worldly metric, he's doing a great job protecting his people, taking land from other people, increasing the prosperity of the nation. And yet every prophet in the Bible looks at this guy and says, he's the worst thing that's ever happened to us. Because while he's bringing material prosperity, he is killing us spiritually. And the, and the way he's doing that is by t- turning a blind eye to or even endorsing the worship of other gods. He's telling the people of Israel who were called to worship the one true God, Yahweh, he's telling them, no, you, well, you keep doing that, but we need to kind of hedge our bets. You need to worship Baal, the, the, the god of, of fertility. You need to worship the God of sex. You need to worship the God of agriculture. You need to worship these other gods just in case that one true God really isn't the one true God. We need to kind of cover our bases. And that is what is leading to the oppression of the poor. We'll talk about how that's happening in just a bit. But Amos, this lowly shepherd, is looking across the border, seeing all of this happen, and he's incensed. And there's a lot of people who see injustice and feel empathy for those who are being oppressed. There are a few, very few, who stand up and do something about it. Fascinating studies into the the mindset of Nazis during the oppression and extermination of the Jewish people. And most psychologists have come to the conclusion that if you were in that situation, you're not the guy standing up smuggling Jews out and keeping them safe. You're the guy putting them to death. Right? That's just that's what we do by nature. Very few people stand up. Very few people put their neck on the line. And that's what Amos is doing here. He feels compelled by God. He feels called by God to stand up and to, and to speak against 
this ruler against the leaders of Israel, against the very people of Israel for the path they're going down, which is leading to prosperity, but it's also leading to great injustice. And so what he does is pick, pick up, he, he picks up his household and he heads over the border and he goes to Bethel. And at Bethel, there's this huge temple to all these foreign gods. And he sets up right there in the epicenter of of idolatry and injustice. And the book of Amos is his collected preaching and writing against what was going on there. So I just want us to take a minute just to consider what, what might God be calling you to do? Amos saw injustice and he didn't just shake his head and say, oh, the world's going to hell. He stood up, had a call from God to do something about it. What is, what, what is it for you? It might be a huge public platform. It might just be something in your household. But God, I'm telling you, God is calling each one of you to stand up against injustice. Now, the, the, the thing that comes back at me more often than not when we talk about being called to do this or that thing for God in the world is that the people's response is, well, I'm, I, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not professionally religious. I don't have a dog collar. I didn't go to Bible college. You know? I don't, I'm not qualified for that. I'm just, I'm, just a, I'm just a, I don't know, whatever. I'm a plumber. You need to get to know Amos well. Because if, if there is anyone who could say, well, I'm not qualified for that job, God. You need to find someone who's been to seminary. If there's anyone who could do that, it was Amos. He says in, in, in chapter 7, verse 14 to 15, he says, he answered Amaziah, which, by the way, if you're having kids, that's not a bad name. He said to Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and also took care of sycamore fig trees. But... The Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. What's he saying? I've got no business doing this. I'm not a prophet. It's not even like my dad was a prophet. It's not in my genes. It's not in my background. I have no qualifications. I was picking figs, shearing sheep. But the Lord took me and said to me, go. Now, every single person in this room, if you're a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're a Christian, every one of you has heard God say, go. Remember the last thing Jesus said before he ascended to heaven? Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age, right? So in response to you saying, I'm not qualified, the Bible says, you've already been told, go. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Everything you need to do what I've told you to do, you will have. So just be thinking as we're going through this, what, what is God calling you to do? He's already called you to make disciples, what more might he be inviting you into, irrespective of where you're coming from? All right, so that in mind, 
I'm going to give you a little bit of structure. I've been trying to do this week to week just to help us kind of break the book down and understand it better. So once again, this book kind of comes together in three parts. So you've got the, the first part in chapter 1 and 2. That's where Amos really speaks against the nations around Israel and then Israel themselves. Then the second part, we'll, we'll work through this, okay? Um, chapter 3 to 6, he's speaking against Israel and it's specifically its leadership. And then in the last part, he's going to describe the coming judgment of God on the people, as well as a little glimmer of hope right there at the end. All right, so let's, let's get into that first part. It's, it's chapter 1 and 2, and I'll just pull out a couple of things that I think are particularly important for us to get if we're going to understand this book. So in this section, he's going to speak against, first of all, the nations. That's like most of chapter 1 and 2, he's just speaking against the nations around Israel. This is not God's people, this is people of other nations, but he's going to point out the injustice that he sees these people participating in. And so he does this very carefully. If if you were to to draw this out on a map, you see he just circles all the way around Israel. He circles the nations all around and he points out the injustice that he sees. He points out where they are sinning against the Lord. And then, if you're reading this as an Israelite, you're probably just going, yep, yep, those dang nations around us, terrible people. Idolatry, yeah, oppression, mm mm-hmm, terrible. And then he gets to the end of chapter 2 and he says, oh, by the way, it's you too. You're right in the the centre of my crosshairs. Yes, these nations are doing the wrong thing, but they're not God's people. You are God's people. You should know better. And so he kind of nails them. It's a very effective kind of rhetorical device. Why is God angry with his people? Because the poor are being ignored. They're being set aside. The poor are being ignored. They're being sold into debt slavery. The poor don't have any money. The poor need stuff like sandals. And so we'll figure out a deal for you where you get the sandals, but then you're going to owe us forever. Debt slavery. And then that, that cycle of poverty, which should be fairly familiar to us, if if you know anything about credit cards, right? Same thing. That cycle is kept in perpetual motion because then the, the rich who own the legal system deny the poor any legal recourse, and so they're stuck forever through the generations. And all of this is being done at the, by the hands of the people who call themselves God's people, and Amos is ticked. And it's not just Amos, it's God through Amos. So let's read a little bit about that in chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. He says, this is what the Lord says, right? This is not Amos. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. And when it says use the same girl, it says what you think it says. And so God is, I'm going to say, pissed. 
when he sees the deeds of his people. He goes on, I mean, we could just read the whole book and it doesn't let up. Skip ahead to chapter 8. Hear the echoes of chapter 2. He says, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may, make, may, may market wheat? Right? They're just obsessed with money. Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Right? They're, just, they're just addicted to this prosperity that Jeroboam has brought them and now they want more and more and more and they'll do anything to anyone to get it. And if you think that sounds terribly different from what we are doing today, then you, 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 you're blind. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very easy to read this about those people and say, those Old Testament people, so dumb, so sinful. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And so this morning, as well as listening for what God might be calling you to, we need to hear these words directed towards us. We need to hear these words. God says, you are selling your own people into slavery. How can you do this? Like, remember, you're the people that I saved from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember that? We have feasts every year to remember that I saved you from slavery and now you are selling your own people into slavery. Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, he makes reference to this, like, I brought you up out of Egypt, you morons. Second part, in chapter 3 to 6, he's, he's really going to hone in on the leaders of the people. And, and this is, you'll see this throughout the prophets. Yes, the people are accountable for their actions, but leadership is ultimately responsible this is why it's, it's no good for us in our Australian egalitarianism to say, oh, we don't need leaders. We, just, we, sh we're all, we should all you know, share responsibility. Rubbish. We need leaders because we need people who are ultimately accountable for what's going on. So he says to the leaders of Israel, you're hypocrites. Every one of you are hypocrites. You are meant to be so much more than this. This mess is nothing like what God has made you to be. So in chapter 3, and verse 1 to 2, he says, Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. What he's saying there is this. I made you for so much more than this. I chose you. You are meant to be a special people, a, a royal priesthood. You're meant to bless the nations around you. Yes, these other nations are doing the wrong thing. Yes, they'll be held accountable for their actions, but they're not you. 
You have been chosen specifically to reflect who God is to the nations around you. The nations around Israel are meant to look at them and say, their God must be amazing. I chose you out of all, out of all the people on earth that I could have chosen. Could have chosen the, the Aboriginal people of Australia. The Inuit. Like, well, like God's not limited in who he chooses to be his people. He chose you, and this is what you've become. I chose you to be different. I chose you to be a blessing. And so... Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. This is the discipline of God for his children. God's response to the waywardness of his children is the right response for any parent in this situation. Correction. Discipline. So when we see this kind of thing going on or when we feel like we experience this thing in our own lives, like we need to see as God's people, both those old covenant people and us today, we need to see that God is active in disciplining us because he loves us, not in spite of his love for us. If you've ever been tempted to say, no, God would never, would never discipline us because he's a God of love, that doesn't make sense. It's the opposite of that. Because he's a God of love, he disciplines us. Just like any loving parent in this room disciplines their children so that they would grow up to be fully flourishing human beings. He disciplines us in order that we would better reflect who he is so that we might be more and more reflective of the character and nature of our Lord Jesus. This is the discipline of God. He treats us as his sons and daughters. This is not condemnation. This is discipline. I know this is really tricky for a lot of us to get our heads around. It's really helpful that the writer to the Hebrews, he really, he, he really, um, he really speaks about this conclusively. So in Hebrews 12, let's read that. He says, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. He goes on. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. 
He says, when God is disciplining you, don't shrink and shrivel. Bear up under it. See that this is God's plan to make you more than you are. That's what he's doing with these people here. He's not saying, well, I'm, screw you guys. He could. They've been unfaithful. We are now divorced. You're written out of the will. He could. Instead, he sees a greater future for them. He sees them as, as those who he created to be, a blessing to the nation. So he needs to discipline, correct, train them to be those people. This is not condemnation. Remember Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, let's be really clear. That verse does not say God will never discipline you. It says God will never abandon you. If he abandons you, he'll never discipline you. It's the exact opposite of what we think is intuitive. If God never disciplines you, it's because you're an illegitimate child. That's what the writer of the Hebrews said. But if you're a true child of God, if you're in Christ Jesus then yes, God will discipline you because he loves you, but there is no condemnation for you. Why? Because Jesus took all of that condemnation onto himself on the cross. If you're in Christ Jesus, all of that, he's taken all of it. I mean, even if, just using our imaginations, even if God wanted to condemn you, there wouldn't be any condemnation in him to put on you. All of it was taken by Jesus on the cross. So there's no condemnation, but there is loving discipline. That's why I think a good response to any form of suffering that you go through, whether it's sickness or lack of finances or, I don't know, whatever, just any hardship, a good response is repentance. Because you don't know if this is God disciplining you for your waywardness and sin. You don't know. And by the way, no one can tell you, oh, yeah, the, the reason, David, you've got a broken arm is because you did that thing last week. No one can do that. No one. If someone ever tells you that, just shut down your ears. Not because God can't discipline you by giving you a broken arm because of that thing you did. Not because he can't, but because that person has no right to speak on God's behalf and say, thus saith the Lord. They're not Amos. going down a rabbit trail here. But listen, a good response to suffering is fasting and repentance and prayer because this might be God's discipline for you and the right response to that discipline is repentance and fasting and prayer. God, show me where I have been wayward. I want to be more like your son. We could talk more about that and I plan to at some point next year. We'll get into all of that stuff. But let's get back to the text. The big problem that Amos has, particularly with the leaders of the people of Israel, is their sheer hypocrisy. Actually, you know, it's not just leaders, it's all of them. It's their sheer hypocrisy. If you want to put things on placards and hold them up at the corner and tell people what God hates, don't go to the things that you might think are the, f- the first thing that come to mind. You want to say, you want to go out the front with a sign, and I don't recommend it, but you should say, God hates hypocrisy. 
If you want to read what Jesus thinks about hypocrisy, read Matthew 23. It is brutal. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. God hates hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy of the people here is, is really, at, at root level, is because they stand up and do the religious thing and sing the songs and make the sacrifices, all the while oppressing the poor. And God hates their worship because of that. That's not, that's not just the preacher getting all worked up. It's not a rhetorical flourish. That is, like, God hates their worship because of that. Motivational verse for the day, chapter 5, 21 to 23. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. When you come to church on Sunday morning, it stinks. I hate it. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. Harps. So they're pouring all of this energy into doing the religious thing week to week, having their services, their sacrifices, doing all this thing, and God hates it. Why? Because they're hypocrites. We love God. We hate the poor. Hypocrites. Amos's whole point here is that true religion transforms the heart. True religion should so transform your, nat- your natural selfishness to take all the money in the world and give nothing to anyone else, right? That's how you're wired. True religion should take that and turn it upside down. True religion transforms the heart. That's why James says in chapter 1 of his book, he says, religion that God our Father accepts rather than hates, as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. True religion is not having just the right crescendo in the worship music with just the perfect lighting and smoke machines. That is not true worship. I'm not saying you can't have those things, but if that is what worship is to you, you've missed it. And if that is what worship is to you while you participate in the active oppression of the poor, then God says, I hate it. I wish you'd shut up. Man, these prophets, they're, um, they get to the point. Instead of all of that junk, Amos says, chapter 5, verse 24, this beautiful, poetic summation, he says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's the vision that he wants us to have. If you want to pursue justice in this world, then you need to have a vision for what that looks like. 
If you want to pursue justice, you need to know what it looks like to achieve justice. Now, just look at me for a sec, because we need to hear this. We are in danger of becoming a kind of justice via hashtag people. If you look on the front of the Melbourne Anglican this month, it's, it's got hashtag kids off Nauru or something like that, which is great. We all, I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't want the kids off Nauru, right? But if it's just hashtag, then it's nothing. It's, it's, it's worse than nothing because it makes us feel like, well, yeah, I, I, I sent that out there, so I'm part of you know, the, the justice-fighting force of this world. You're not. You need a vision of what justice looks like. The big problem for these people, apart from their hypocrisy, is their idolatry. Now, here's the link between idolatry and, and injustice. These gods that they're worshipping, apart from no, being no god at all, these gods that they're worshipping don't have the standards that Yahweh has. Yahweh has high standards for how to treat people. If you, have, if you have benefited at all by universal human rights, then you can thank Yahweh. That is undisputed in history. If it wasn't for Judeo-Christian morality, there would be no Bill of Human Rights. Undisputed. These gods that they're worshipping don't care about poor people. They don't. And so as soon as they start following these gods, they're like, well, we don't need to worry about them anymore. Yahweh kind of cares for them a lot, but Baal doesn't. And so the link is there. They start following other gods. They start lowering their standards. Now, this is true for any one of us. If you, if you, if you want to base your standards of ethics, morality, justice on anything other than the one true God, you're going to fall short. I mean, if you want to make... Martin Luther King, your hero, the guy that you emulate in every way, then you're going to fall short because he did wonderful things for civil rights, but he also committed adultery. Inconsistency, incomplete as a, as a hero to be followed and emulated in every way. Don't, don't go after institutions. The UN will not provide you with a perfect example. The UN struggles to do justice in the world. It seems like they favour these nations over these nations. They're not so united. Celebrities aren't going to help you. I listened to a lengthy interview with a celebrity recently who was doing a great job of advocating for um, the... the the absolute deconstruction of sex slavery in the world, which is a massive trade. And yet when they were asked about pornography, she said, oh, I'm, I'm pro-pornography, just what, you know, people should have whatever they want when it comes to pornography. Not seeing the friggin' obvious, inextricable link between pornography and sex slavery. You try and emulate the great secular humanist crusaders of our time and you're going to find that though they did great things, they had no basis for their crusades. There was there's no ultimate objective morality if you don't believe that God exists. 
It's just your preference. So everything is going to be incomplete. Every emulation is going, to, is going to end in disaster unless you have God's revealed standard for justice. What he has revealed himself. The reason that his revealed standard of justice is perfect is because he is perfect. So I'm not dissing all those other things, by the way. I'm just saying they're incomplete, right? We need to come back to what God says about who we are and why we should pursue justice in the world. Man, I'm chewing up my time. Can I get a bit of extra time? I, I want to get to this last section, okay? Because without this, it's all depressing. All right, we've got to get to the last little glimmer of hope, all right? So third bit. The third, third part is in uh, chapter 7 to 9. And, um, and this is where we're going to get the bad news before we get the good news, which is a, a, the right sequence. So Amos is going to say, because of all of this, because of your flagrant disregard for God's people, People made in God's image. Because of that, the day of the Lord is coming. And as you know, the day of the Lord is this day of God's justice, seen various times through history, and ultimately seen when Jesus comes back to make and restore all things, to do perfect justice on the earth. But he says, in the meantime, this day of the Lord is going to come, and you're going to be judged by him And he's going to do this through a foreign power who's going to come and destroy you, exile you. We know from history this happened 40 years, a mere 40 years after he said it. The Assyrians came in, smoked the northern kingdom of Israel, exported, exiled the people to foreign lands. And Amos, along with all of the other prophets, said, this is not just Assyria doing what Assyria does, this is God judging you. This is God disciplining you for your utter failure to be who he's made you to be. So he has these visions of like a locust plague coming in, representing the, the, the hordes of the Assyrians who come through, of, of, of fire destroying the, the, the kingdom of Israel, particularly that temple in Bethel, that, that idolatrous epicenter. God's just destroying that place, which is exactly what happened. He, see, he sees a man eating overripe fruit and seeing that as the people of Israel being consumed because of their sin. So all of this, this day of the Lord, this judgment, this, this discipline of God is coming, he says, but, but last few verses of the whole book, verse 11 to 15. I won't read all of them because I'm, I'm out of time, but... This is the hope that he leaves them with. This vision of something that comes after judgment. This vision of something that that comes after destruction and exile. It's a vision of God's mercy following his justice. And he says in in this vision that he has of what God is going to do in the future, he sees a a Davidic king, the, the, the household of David being restored. He sees a a messianic rule 
over not just the people of Israel, but all nations, that all nations of the world were going to come under the rule of this messianic king and that justice and mercy would meet in that place. There would be justice and there would be mercy. And what he's seeing here is a vision of the Lord Jesus. Nothing less. Someone who would come in the line of David just as the Lord Jesus did. Someone who would establish a messianic rule over not just the people of Israel, but people of all nations like you and me. Someone who would bring justice and mercy. Because this is what you want in a God, by the way. If you're, if you're just thinking about this, if you think, what, what do I want in a God? You don't want the God who's all mercy. You do, why? Because you don't want a weak, gutless, nearly swore kind of God. You don't want that God. You don't want a God who sees the rape of 11-year-olds in Indonesia and says, oh, it'll be all right. You don't want that God. You want a God of justice who sees every secret sin and is angered by it. You want that God. And you need a God who takes justice and brings it together with mercy. You need a God who brings it together with mercy because otherwise we're all condemned forever. All of us. Not just those guys who are pimping the 11-year-olds, right? It's all of us. What happened with Jesus? What happened in his life, death, burial, resurrection? You had justice and mercy coming together in perfect unity. The old saying goes that at the cross, justice and mercy kiss. You have God judging sin and you have God pardoning sin. What Amos sees is what we are here to celebrate this morning. If you know anything about the grace of God, then you know his justice and his mercy. And the reason you're here is so that you can praise him for it. That's what we're going to do in just one minute. We're going to praise him for his justice and mercy, for all that he is for us. We're going to be reminded that our worship needs to come from a place of, of, of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness is a good word, right? Not just that little bit of your heart that you give to Sunday morning, but wholeheartedness, all of lifeness. So what's happened this morning is that Amos has come in and he's roughed us up. I hope you feel roughed up. Otherwise, you haven't been listening, right? So you've been roughed up. But as we close now, let us remember that God's justice is mixed with mercy. That if you're here this morning and you love Jesus and you trust in his death on your behalf, then there is now no condemnation for you. That which you deserved has been absorbed. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you need to hear these words of warning and understand them. There is justice coming, not just for Hitler. There is justice coming for everyone who has fallen short of God's glory. That is, everyone. And so you need to run 
You need to run with everything you have to the mercy of God. It's been made available for you in the cross of Jesus. Where Jesus is, there is mercy and safety and forgiveness and glory. Run to him. You might like to run down here, down, just down over here. As we sing, we're going to have some people here just waiting to pray with you. If you're here this morning and you, and you, you feel like, I need, I need to know this mercy of God, then you need to come and people will pray with you, talk with you about that. If you just want to come and be prayed for for any reason at all, please come. We'd love to pray with you, but I'm going to pray for us now as we prepare to sing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Amos. I'm, so, I'm just so grateful for him. I'm grateful that where he could have turned a blind eye, he refused to, and he stood up and he spoke. He preached and he warned and called us to something better. And we know that there is one greater than Amos, our Lord Jesus, who didn't just point out our sin, but died for our sin. He didn't just speak against our hypocrisy, but died for our hypocrisy. And so now we come as your children, not condemned, but lovingly disciplined. Please make us more like your son. Whatever it takes, please make us more like him. We want to be like Jesus. Even now as we lift our voices to praise you, Lord God, please invade our hearts. Transform us. True religion is transformed. Please give us a heart for the poor, for the oppressed, for the widow, for the orphan. Please help us to spend less time absorbed in our own gratification. Show us where we can be active in bringing your just, merciful rule to bear on this earth. All of these things, Lord, that I've prayed for are way beyond us. They're way beyond us, way beyond our efforts. But we know that what is impossible for us is possible for you and that you can do more, far more, than we could ever ask or imagine. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.